Well, good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and uh, open to the Gospel of John. Quick question. Which of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which of those four contain the Christmas story? It's a pop quiz. Which one? Is it Matthew? Is it Mark? Is it Luke? Or is it John? Or all of the above? Or is it Matthew and Mark? Or is it Mark and Luke? Or is it Matthew and John? Or Luke and Matthew? Do you know? If I were a youth pastor still, I would probably make you, you know, I'd say Matthew goes over there, Matthew, Mark over there, and I'd make you go, and, and I'd embarrass you, but I won't do that because grown-ups don't take embarrassing very well. So, uh, <laughs> we'll make you commit this morning, but I, it is a, it's a great question. Which Gospels have the story of the birth of Christ? Well, Mark skips the birth of Christ completely. He starts off with John the Baptist preaching uh, just as Jesus comes on the scene, so we'll scratch him off the list. Matthew and Luke, it is, who tell the story of the birth of Jesus. So you might want to mark that down. Remember that. But this Christmas season, we're going to study through, we're going to focus on the opening verses of the Gospel of John. The Apostle John really doesn't give us an account of Christ's birth. We don't get stories of shepherds and angels and stars and wise men. We don't hear about uh, inns or taxes or mangers or King Herod. So why are we going to look at the Gospel of John at Christmas? Well, The reality is that John does, in fact, talk about the Christmas story in a way. But he doesn't give us any of that. What John does is he focuses on the marvel of the Incarnation. We've talked this morning about Emmanuel. We've sung about Emmanuel. Praise His name, Emmanuel. We talked about Emmanuel at the communion table. John deals with the wonder of Emmanuel, God with us. Here in these opening verses of his Gospel, we come face to face with some marvelous realities about who Jesus really is. In a remarkably few verses, John uses word pictures that are loaded with meaning to lay out profound truths about Jesus who He is, why He came. The more that you will spend time pondering these descriptions, the more you will increase in wonder and in awe of the mystery of who this glorious One that God sent He really is. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at just five of the descriptive words that John uses in this first chapter. Today, we're going to look at 
the description, Jesus is the Word. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus is the Maker. The next week, the 17th of December, we're going to take a break. The choir is going to have a presentation. The next week is Christmas Eve. Can you believe it already? So that morning, we're going to talk about Jesus as the life. Then uh, the last Sunday of the month on December 30th, we're going to talk about Jesus as the Lamb of God. Five word pictures. Each of them we are very familiar with, but at the same time, I think we will discover some marvelous things we've never thought about before that are very profound and will cause us to appreciate so much more Emmanuel, God with us. Let's read these first five verses together. Actually, before we do, let me say this. We're going to read them together, but I want to encourage you to do something. Matter of fact, I want to challenge you to do something. Even since it's the Christmas season, I want to double-dog dare you. Okay, if you're a fan of the Christmas story. I want to double-dog dare you to take these first five verses of John chapter 1 and put them to memory. If you don't already know them by heart, I think that these are five verses that you should know by heart. We'll see in a little bit this morning some of the reasons why I think these verses are so important. But let's read them together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that light was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As John opens his book, in the very first phrase, he introduces us to the Word. The Word. And it's very clear that the Word was a person, or is a person. Verse 2 it says, He, speaking of the Word, was in the beginning. As the passage unfolds, it doesn't say it anywhere here in these first five verses. It doesn't even say it till you get a fairly long ways down the chapter. You discover very clearly that it's Jesus. The Word is Jesus. That's not news to most of you. Most of you have known that for a long time. That when we come here to John and we read about the Word, we're talking about Jesus. So while it might not be new, what I want you to think this morning is perhaps something you've never thought of before. Why does John call Jesus the Word? He could have said, in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. But he says, in the beginning was the Word. Have you ever wondered why? Well, I hope to help answer that question this morning. It's interesting that as John calls Jesus the Word, I would call it an uncommonly common title or description. It's common. This, this, the word that is translated word here for us is a very common Greek word. It's found over 330 times in, in the Scripture. It's the word logos or logos. It means word. It's common. 
However, while it's common, it is uncommonly used here. John is the only writer in the Bible who takes that word, word, and uses it as a name, as a description for Jesus. And he doesn't do it very often. Twice in this chapter, and then one time in the opening words to his little letter, 1 John, we find he says, that which we have held in our hands and, and seen with our eyes, we've touched him, and he says, of the Word. And we find it again in Revelation chapter 19. Again, the Word. So it's uncommonly used as a title for Jesus, but it's a very common word. Why has He chosen to use this common word in an uncommon way and call Jesus the Word? These first two verses here in John 1 are almost sound kind of like a riddle. If you read them quickly and without really pausing to think it through, your mind kind of starts spinning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right? I just read that and you kind of, oh, what in the world? Main point, and it's kind of hard to miss if you look at it carefully. The main point is the Word is God. We see it several ways laid out to make it very clear that the Word, and we already know as we find out later, I've already mentioned it, we find out later in the chapter, the Word is Jesus. So Jesus is God, but He lets, that, lets us see it several ways. First of all, Jesus is God, the Word is God, because the Word is eternal. He was in the beginning, it says, literally, when everything began. The Word is eternal. He was not created when everything was created, He was already there. He pre-existed before anything was created. In the beginning, the Word was there. The Word didn't begin at the Incarnation. The Word began never. He is eternally existent. Secondly, the Word is distinct from God. It says He was with God. If He's with God, He is not God. He's distinct then from God the Father. Verse 14, we'll get down there in a little bit later, it says He came from the Father. So the Word is eternal and the Word is distinct from God and yet He says the Word was God. He is God. He's identical with God. He is distinct from God, and yet He is the same as God. And now our mind starts to hurt. And it will hurt more as we move along. For many of us, this is something we learned in Sunday school. We've heard it most of our life, and we take it for granted. And we just, Jesus is God, and, and God is one God in, in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And we know that, and we take it for granted. But this was radical and, and revolutionary to many of the folks whom John is to whom he's writing, to the Jews who are hearing for the first time the perhaps the gospel of Christ, this was earth shaking. Every morning, every good Jew would recite the Shema, the prayer, and it begins with 
every morning and they'd say it every evening as well. And, and it begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one Lord. There is one God. There is only one God. And here he says, the Word is with God and the Word is God. The head starts to scratch. And they start to scratch and they start to hurt. And John has deliberately left, has framed this chapter to read when you start off. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And every good Jew, when he would see those words, his mind immediately goes to the very first words of Genesis. In the beginning, God. He has deliberately laid out this, these opening verses to, to give us a connection back to the opening verses of Scripture, the opening verses of Genesis. Because you see, when you go to Genesis, what you find is you find the singular one God is there creating Creating, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes through and he works his way through the days. Day one, day two, day three. You get down to day number number six, verse 26, chapter one, Genesis. And suddenly and inexplicably, something changes. And it says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The one God says, let us in our image after our likeness. See, John, I think, deliberately wants us to go back and look at Genesis 1 because what he does here in John chapter 1 is he lets us see who that we was. Or as we say in Texas, who that we is. <laughs> None of it's right. <laughs> Not right English, it's right theology. Who that we was. It is God the Father and God the Word. God the Son. All things, as we will talk about in a couple of, couple of weeks, all things were made by Him. And without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Exodus next week. Jesus, the Word, is the Creator. He was there in Genesis 1. He is God. There is one God, and yet there is community in the Godhead. There's Father, and there is the Word, He says here. Fourthly, He is eternally God. The Word was God. He doesn't say the Word became God. He was always God. The Word was with God in the beginning. So from the very beginning, before anything was created, the Word was, was eternally distinct from God. It is not that God was, is God the Father and then He kind of swapped and became God the Son. Then He goes back to being the Father and He keeps changing places. It is, there has been an eternal distinction between the Father and the Son. He was with God in the beginning. He has always been God. He has always been distinct from God. Yet He has always been God. He was in the beginning. He was eternally present. He did not originate later. 
all of that in those verses. And they're so key. And one of the reasons I think you should memorize these verses is because they address a lot of the heresies that exist out there about Jesus Christ. Every cult gets it wrong about who Jesus is. Every cult does. They try to make Jesus somehow less than God. But these verses say it in every possible way it could be said. Jesus Christ is God. He is not a separate God. He did not originate from God later. He he is not less than God. He is not man who became God. He is God, always has been. He is distinct from the Father and yet is one with the Father from the beginning. We don't read about the Word again until down in verse 14. So look down there in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It says the Word became flesh. The Word became man. It's interesting to say the Word became flesh. For those of us who read the Bible very much, the word flesh often shows up in a negative context as in sinful flesh. The flesh in me wants to do what's wrong. This, it's used here not in terms of sinful flesh, but it's used in terms to give a shocking, to, to kind of grab our attention with a little, for a shock factor. Because, you see, the point of flesh, I think all the way through Scripture, the, the term is used to denote a weakness. See, God, John could have said the Word became man. But I, he wants to get our attention bluntly say the Word became flesh. Not sinful, but He took on weak, frail flesh. Omnipotent God took on fragile human flesh and bone and blood. God became man. This, this concept addresses some other heresy that has been out there over throughout history that somehow Jesus was something other than truly human. That He was just a you know, a vision. He was a spirit that appeared to be a man, but wasn't really a man. But that's not what this says at all. Jesus actually became man. He took on human flesh. And yet, as man, He was still fully God. Full, as the verse said, full of glory as the one and only of the Father. And it's a profound mystery that should spin your head again. I love the way Wayne Grudem puts it in his systematic theology. He says, the fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join Himself to a human nature forever so that the infinite God became one person with finite man will remain in eternity as the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in the universe. I can tell you about the incarnation that God became man, but I can't explain it. But it's true. 
And Jesus, in order to accomplish all that He came to do, had to be both God and man. We'll talk more about that another time. Now again, most of you are probably thinking, well, I know all this. I've heard all this. I learned it in Sunday school. I heard it in children's church. I've heard it in a hundred sermons through the years. This is all old stuff. (laughs) Well, first of all, I hope that you'll get a new appreciation for it. Think about it, because while it may be old, it's not it's not commonplace. It is awesome, it's marvelous. But again, why didn't John simply say in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was God, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus became a man? Why does he say The Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why the Word? Did you get it? I just thought the answer. Did you get it? You see, (laughs) you can't know my thoughts unless I express them. Words are typically how we express our thoughts. They're how we get to know one another. Look down at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. No one has ever seen God. God is infinite. He is out there. How can we as finite people here on earth know a God we have never seen? The Word is how we know God. No one has ever seen God, he says, but the only God, he's back to talking about the Word, who is the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him, God, known. Again, kind of a little riddle. You have to work your way through it. No one has ever seen God, so we can't know God, but the only God who is also the Word, He has made God known. That's why Jesus is called the Word. He came so that we can know God. Jesus was the clear, vivid, true, perfect expression of the Father in a way so that we could know Him. Jesus said it like this, If you knew Me, you would know My Father also. Over in John chapter 14, He said, Anyone who has seen Me has seen the Father. In the communion, I read from Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3, and the writer there says basically the same thing. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But, he says, now, verse 2, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Jesus is the living, breathing Word of God in flesh and bone. Back to verse 14. That's why He's called the Word. He's the expression of God. But notice in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is how we know God. But He tented among us. I I put that because, see, 
It says He dwelt among us. And we don't use that word dwelt very much. But it means He lived among us. But that really doesn't catch the flavor of the word that's there in Greek. Because the word there in Greek literally is this. He tented among us. Or He tabernacled among us. We don't use that word tabernacle. But tent we get. Tents. How many of you spent a night in a tent? Probably most of us. Sooner or later, we spend a night in a tent. It says, Jesus tented among us. Generally, when we think of tents, we think of something for a very short time. If you spend a night in a tent, if you're like my wife and like many of you that I know, you spend as few nights as possible ever in a tent. Right? Some of you enjoy camping and spending time in tents, but you still only do it for a day or two or a week at a time, if possible. We think of tents as something short, but that's not what it means here. It doesn't mean that just that Jesus just came and He tented, He lived among us for a little while, although it was a little while in the scope of human history. But that's not the thought. Over at the end of the book, at the end of the Bible, John chapter 21, just the next to last there, as John is writing again, but John says this, Behold, the dwelling, and there's that same word, the tent of God is with men. And He will dwell, literally, He will pitch His tent with them, and they will be His people. It's speaking right there of the of heaven, the new Jerusalem. God, His tent will be among us. And He will live. He will dwell with us. He will tent with us in heaven. Well, heaven isn't for a short time. Remember, heaven is forever and ever and ever. So it's not about time. Why did He use the word tent? It's not about time. It's about proximity. It's about closeness. See, have you ever been tent camping with other people? Have you noticed that when their tent is near your tent, it's like they're in your tent? You can hear them cough. You can hear their sleeping bags rustle. You know, <laughs> you can you can see their shadows through the the tents. You know, it's it's like they're there. That's the point when he says he tents among us. He's there with us. The implication is a rather is is rather an intimate relationship. I love the way John Piper describes it. He says it this way. I think what pitching a tent with us implies is that God wants to be on familiar terms with us. He wants to be close and he wants a lot of interaction. If you come into a community and you build a huge palace with a wall around it, it says something about your desire to be with people. But if you pitch a tent in my backyard, you probably want to use my bathroom and to eat often at my table. He continues, he says, that is why God became human. He came to pitch a tent in our human backyard so that we would have a lot of dealings with Him. I think that's rich. God became man and he pitched a tent jesus the word 
He did lunch with people. Jesus hung out with common folks. He hung out with fishermen. He hung out with tax collectors, with sinners, with average people. He had conversations, meals. He laughed. He cried. He got sweaty and dirty. President Trump was in St. Charles this week. He didn't come and hang out with most of us common folk and have dinner at our house, barbecue in the backyard. Nothing against the president. I'm just saying that Jesus came to our backyard and lived as one of us. But in all of that personal interaction, was the deity of the Word diminished at all? Not hardly, because John, who was one of the few who knew Jesus the very best, went on to say, and the Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. What's the next phrase? We beheld His glory. I have a feeling that John, when he talks about glory here, he's trying to get our attention to help us to think back to the Old Testament and this whole thing of pitching the tent. You see, in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel left Egypt as they were on their way to the Promised Land and God instructed them to build the tabernacle, the tent, which was the temporary temple, the portable temple where God met with the people. And there, the glory of God came upon that place We know very little of what it was, but somehow the glory of God in a very visible manifestation was there. Cloud, fire, light. So much uh, more we don't know, but it was there, the presence of God on the tabernacle, the tent. And John says, the Word tented among us and we beheld His glory. You see, he's getting this picture. That in the same way as the glory of God was there in that tabernacle, we saw the glory of God in a visible way, in a tangible way, in Jesus. As He ate and drank and slept and sweated with people. So, if the Word is God, and the Word became flesh, and The Word became flesh because it is, as He became flesh, it is how we can know God. Then comes this question. What do we learn of God from Jesus? What is it if we were there walking and talking and eating with Jesus, what would we learn about the Father through Jesus? More than could be written, John says at the end of his Gospel, he says that I suppose if everything that Jesus said and did were written down, there wouldn't be enough books in all the world to contain it. But of all the the books of information that John could have written to say about what the Father is like from spending time with Jesus, John narrows it down to two words. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we look at Jesus, what we discover is that the Father is the fullness of truth. In a world that is filled with lies and filled with misinformation and filled with misconceptions, God is true. Jesus came as the faithful Word of God. He was truth and He spoke truth. And Jesus said, speaking in John chapter 8, He said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I have to say this, truth isn't always what we want to hear. It's what we need to hear, but it's not always what we like to hear. Sometimes truth is offensive. Sometimes truth can be really inconvenient. And the real inconvenient truth is that Jesus taught is that people are under the curse of sin. People are headed for eternal destruction because of sin. And without rescue, people are doomed. But thankfully, God's truth doesn't stop there. God's faithful Word continued to reveal more of the Father. And we learned that the Father is not only the fullness of truth, but the Father is the fullness of grace. We are all sinners. As such, we deserve judgment, but God is full of grace. God's grace loved us so much that in that verse we know so well, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God's grace sent Jesus to be our rescue, our Savior. In fact, it's in His very name, Jesus. Jesus is really a Hebrew name, Yeshua, transcribed into the Greek, Jesus. But it means God is Savior. That's why Jesus came. The Word came so that we can know God more than just to know Him intellectually so that we might experience His grace, and know Him relationally. So the real question to all of this is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Me. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, you have everlasting life. If you've never done that, that's His invitation, His call to you this morning. Trust in Him as Savior. But if you're here this morning, you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a lesson for you and me here too. See, Jesus came so that we might have relationship with the Father. For the believer in Jesus Christ, we are to follow Him, to pursue Him. In so doing, we grow in relationship, intimate relationship with God. Trust in Jesus as Savior and pursue Him. 
That was Paul's passion. That I may know Him. It was the one thing that he sought after more than anything else in life. To know Him. Father, it's for most of us, it's something we've heard time and time again. But I pray that this Christmas season, that it would settle upon us in a new and fresh way. The marvel that the Word of God, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And it might be impressed upon us in a new way as well how great the sacrifice of Christ to purchase our salvation. That we might then pursue Him, follow Him with all we are and all we have. So we might grow to know and love You more and more with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. This we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus.